Hello and welcome to the Modern Musclehead Podcast. This is Scott Tuzanov, MetabolicMasterpiece.com, as always, joined by my co-host Brian Cron of BrianCron.com. And uh, today we are going to be joined by a special guest, Brian Chung. He's got a fantastic website called evidencedbasedfitness.net. I'm going to have a link below in the description. Uh, Brian is a plastic surgeon specializing in hand surgery. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be covering, well, who knows, it's kind of a, a last minute guest appearance here. No real structure to our conversation. We're just going to be picking Brian's brain um, about evidence-based fitness, some of the research that he's been uh, diving into lately, any of his insights. But first off, as always, we're going to get you caught up on what our training has been like. And uh, Brian, I'll pass it off to you. What's been happening in your world of training and um, result-wise, what's been going on? Well, uh, good to be back. Uh, I had a really great week, man. I, I took about a lot of last week kind of just slowed down. I went back home and didn't, uh, you know, skip some workouts and certainly had a few beers and uh, didn't train too hard, but didn't really affect me much. And I came back this week and I'm back to my twice a days and it's just, uh, I really hit my groove. It's really, it's awesome. I mean, if you could afford it in your schedule to try it for even just for a short period, it's, uh, I mean, nothing works forever, but this certainly works well. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. Yeah. And uh, so, was it? You're out of town. What was it like training in? Were you training in a different gym setting? What's the gym like there when you're? Uh, I mean, it's my hometown, so I mean, I got lots of gyms where I can go to. And but I just, you know, I was only there for a limited amount of time, and I didn't want to, you know, kind of be a pain in anyone's butt and and be running off to the gym all the time. So I just, I, I caught a leg workout and saw my old friends, and uh, but I took about three days off, and that was nice, and. Um, had too much to drink one night, which wasn't so nice, but you know, it all kind of <laughs> it all kind of balanced out in the end. That was my night last night, and it was a struggle. I've had a, a week <laughs> of uh, I haven't slept much this week at all. Just just shitty, but late nights and early mornings. And uh, <laughs> yesterday I was so freaking exhausted, but out with the boys and a few Ryan Cokes later, and that doesn't happen too often. I don't uh, I don't drink. Um, all that much, but uh, it hit me pretty, hit me pretty hard last night, and then uh, I still it? got up early in the morning today. I woke up at 5 a.m. like I've been doing all week, and I said, "Come on, go to back to bed." And I couldn't fall back to sleep for another two hours, but then I crashed again and got a decent two to three more hours. So that was, I was grateful for that. Why? Why is drinking such a struggle with you? It's always, it's, it's never fun. It's always, oh, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I guess it's probably why I don't drink all that much. <laughs> yeah, it hits me pretty hard. But I, I let loose last night. I just felt like it. And yeah. um, still trying to get over a little bit of this stupid head cold. Um, so I, don't, I haven't quite had my energy for the past two weeks. So it's basically turned into a deload for me where I haven't been lifting the weights that I normally do. And I haven't been pushing as hard as I would prefer to push this week. I've had some moments like there's been a few workouts or a few sets where all of a sudden I have it and I feel like pushing it. So I'll test myself a little bit here and there, but uh, it's kind of been nice to dial things back. I'd say overall volume wise with our training, it's a little bit lower. Uh, we're, we've stuck with the basics, just like a lot of straight sets for the most part. And, um, 
kind of in the the moderate rep range. Nothing too heavy, uh, not crazy light or anything, but it's a, it's been a nice change of pace and just kind of preparing preparing ourselves to really crank up the volume big time and uh, and test our limits. So really, really looking forward to the to that, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be another week or two of just kind of taking it easy. Yeah, that's uh, that's really smart. And I mean, we were talking before we got on the air here that, like, when you, once you've been building muscle for a long time, you you can look back and you can realize that it's never like this linear process where you're adding, you know, a couple pounds a month or even a couple pounds a year. It's always like these long periods where you don't really accomplish much, and then all of a sudden, boom, you put on five, six, seven, eight pounds and in a relatively short stretch. So it's good to kind of like, you know, have periods where you just, you know, you, st- you still work out, you still do what you, do what you do, but you're not like killing it in the kitchen and you're not killing it in the gym. You're just kind of, you're just showing up, you know, you're just, you're, you're showing up to work every day. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting perspective there. And I, I'd say it's, it's kind of carried over into my nutrition and, yeah. uh, and even my lifestyle as I've dialed it back in the gym mm-hmm. volume wise and effort wise. Um, I've kind of been a little bit more relaxed on my nutrition as well, hence getting a little tipsy last night. And um, uh, maybe even been a, a little bit lazy um, in terms of like not as active as I, I usually am outside, not walking my dog as much. Um, but yeah, this week it's starting to get that stuff a little bit. Uh, it's starting to come together again. So I'm starting to pay a little bit more attention to the nutrition and my activity level, but it's been nice to just take a complete break from all of it. Like mentally, I'm starting to feel refreshed. Uh, and, and like you said, it's not like, even though I'm dialing it down and not really pushing it hard in the gym, I still, I love it. it it's a part, I would rather do that than not go to the gym. Cause it is, it is such a part yeah. of me. I just, I, I love the atmosphere and love doing well- it. Yeah, and, and even if you're not making quote unquote gains per se, I mean you're still getting a health benefit from it, and you're still, and certainly you're not regressing. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's not like, you know, you're still deriving a lot of of health as you know physiological and psychological benefits from just going to the gym and 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 doing what you do. But you know, it's good to kind of have these periods where you just you know punch a clock, and then you know when everything lines up, your schedule's good, you, your joints feel good, you know, boom, then you really kill it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it has been interesting to kind of see the whole ebb and flow of things for the past 6 months where I've um I've gone like especially through this cut where I I've um I've gone through periods like a f- few weeks, maybe 6 weeks where I'm like really dialed in and then dial it back a little bit and then crank it back up again and dial it back and I think it's it's fun to me. I, yeah. I it's been a lot more manageable. It seems more like a lifestyle. Um, I never feel completely deprived, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been going really really well for me. It seems like sometimes I say I'm thinking, well, so when are we going to really step things up with the cut? And yeah, uh, I see. I feel like I'm saying it all the time now. Like I've been on this cut forever, but I I haven't been. It's been it's just a little a roller yeah. coaster, but not in the sense of like typical yo-yo dieters or anything like that. It's just kind of listening to my body for the most part. It's yeah. been pretty intuitive and uh, yeah, it's just been feeling really great. And we also had, uh, we, we had some, some listener mail. I was going to call it reader mail, but we had listener mail, people asking intelligent questions and, and now we're compelled to 
We're compelled to answer them because they are intelligent. <laughs> and, and so someone asked, someone wanted to know about myo reps, which is something you do. And they emailed me, and of course I couldn't really give them a good answer. So I figured I would like I'd pass the mic to you. What are these myo reps that you're so crazy about? Well, I think uh, I think I've included some links in our past podcast uh, in the description areas and our show notes. Um, to it's I came across it through. I wish I I don't know how to say his pronounce his name correctly. Uh, is it Borge or or Borg oh, yeah. Fagurli yeah. or something Fagurli Fagurli? Um, <clears throat> yeah, that that big European guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I like follow, I enjoy following his work. And I think initially he was, I don't know if he's trying to find something that was better than blood flow restriction training, which was pretty popular there a year or two ago, um, hearing lots of people discuss it. And I think it's along that same premise, um, but he has a great write-up describing it all on on his website, and there's there's a few different approaches that he takes with it. Uh, one of the approaches that I take with myo reps, it is a form of rest pause training, and I think um, I think it's kind of a a combination of rest pause and dog crap and a few other different methods, kind of all rolled into one. But basically, how one of the ways that we perform myo reps is to select a weight let's say if i choose an exercise and i'm aiming for 12 to 15 reps for the first activation set so during that first activation set the theory that he puts out there is that you're not using all your muscle fibers until the last like three reps there uh so like the first first nine reps of a 12 rep set are just kind of priming priming you up getting you ready kind of wearing down those muscle fibers and then you're using you're maximally recruiting all the muscle fibers for the last three set three reps and then you only take a short break like anywhere mm-hmm. from from 5 to 15 30 seconds but preferably shorter like think i think it's most effective with the shorter rest periods like 5 to 15 seconds just like a rest pause set and then you but with rest pause training traditional rest pause training you do like 12 to 15 reps rest for 10 seconds and try to do as many more reps as you can with myo reps one of the ways that he does it is um to do your 12 to 15 reps and then do say like three reps the next set and then rest for five to 15 seconds and three more reps three more reps three more reps until you get to the point where you can only do two reps right and as soon as you hit that two rep mark then you're done your set um but he's got a few other different methods that he mm-hmm. goes about it. And uh, so basically saying that that first activation set, it's only those last few reps that are, you're getting the most bang for your buck with. But each myo rep set afterwards, where you're only doing three reps, three reps, you're like maximally recruiting all the muscle fibers um, with each set. So um, I think it's interesting. E- either way, um, mm-hmm. I'm not – so obviously by the sounds of it, I'm not – I haven't looked at the research in depth or yeah. nor do I, I don't want to say nor do I care all that much. All I know is that it's a fun, it's yeah. a fun way of training. It's mm-hmm. uh, I love rest pause training. I love doing like hundred rep sets and traditional rest pause and multi-angle rest pause sets. So this is just a different kind of training technique to throw in there. Absolutely. 
I hope that makes sense. It's better off for me just linking to the <laughs> his work where he describes it in great t- detail and all the geeky stuff that goes along with it. Cool. Well, speaking of geeks, I guess we should uh, we should bring up our guest here. Um, so. <laughs> are, are you there, Brian? You're back from your bathroom. Uh, that's totally expected. That's fine. The same. Thanks. Thanks. Right. Well, uh, and Doctor Brian Chung. Sorry, I should add is uh, is our our very esteemed guest today. And I gotta, I mean, I gotta start with your bio here, man. I mean, you know, this is impressive. I mean, listen to this. Okay. Bachelor of Arts, Psychology, then goes back, gets a second major in English. It's amazing. And, oh, sh- sorry, it's mine. Um, <laughs> what the hell? Wrong oh Brian. God. The wrong oh. Brian. <laughs> sorry. Good, okay. Good reason. No, I mean, you got this, I don't know. So you got... But the real question is, Doc, do you lift? <laughs> oh, he lifts. He lifts. He doesn't. <laughs> no, you got you, you you got your science degree, obviously. Then you got your then you got your master's, right? Right. And what was your master's in? Uh, biomechanics. Okay, yeah, that sounds hard. Um, and then after that, then you got your your PhD, right? Or did, or then did you go into med school? How did it work? No, I started my PhD first. Okay, and yeah, and what was that in? Uh, research methods and biostatistics in sport medicine. Oh, well, that sounds, yeah, that sounds hard. Um, okay. And then you just said, then you applied for med school and, and got in, you wrote the MCAT and boom. I wrote the MCAT four times. Yeah. Really? It was awesome. <laughs> four times. Okay. So I, I think, I think it was three or four. I can't remember now. <laughs> really? Yeah. So that yeah. was, that wasn't a whim. That, that was something you definitely wanted. Uh, the first two times were not really on a whim, but if the thing that I sort of had to do, like in undergrad, you, I, my parents were always wanted me to go into medicine. I was very resistant, but I felt like I had to keep them happy, so I wrote the MCAT. And all my all my friends at that time, that summer, mm-hmm. were all doing the MCAT, so there was that sort of peer pressure. <laughs> I feel like the MCAT's like drugs, like cocaine, right? It's like we're all trying the MCAT this year. Um, <laughs> but because I was working in a in a research lab during the summer, and everybody in the lab was also doing the MCAT, and my parents were pushing me to do the MCAT, and I was like, well, I guess I could. I guess I could study for the MCAT. Okay, fine. Um, and then took the MCAT. I think I missed one section. Like one section I got a slightly lower score than I should have and then had, had to take it again. Maybe it was only three times. <laughs> I think, I think. well, because I ended up, t- I took it a second time because I wanted to see if I could get that one section score up because you're supposed to get, I, at the time to get into med school, you needed a 10, 10, 10, and an R. So there's four sections to the MCAT at the time. One's for biology, one's for physics, one's for, no, sorry, one's for biology, one's for uh, verbal skills like writing and grammar and stuff, and then a verbal reasoning, like summarizing, comp- reading comprehension, basically, and then one's for chemistry and physics, and then the last one's a writing sample. And the writing sample, you get a letter grade from, I guess technically you could get a letter grade from A to, I think T or S is the highest you can go. And you had to meet a minimum of a P or something like that. Anyways, um, 
So you're supposed to, you know, the, most medical schools are saying you had to have 10 in every section and then a whatever letter. I don't remember what the letter was now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had, a, I had an 8 in one of my sections. Mm -hmm. So I went back to see if I could get a better score than an 8 in that one section. But you have to take the whole thing, right? So did that. And then after that, I wasn't really that interested in going to medical school. So I stopped. But then when I did get interested in going to medical school again... Um, my scores had expired, so I had to take it again. Well, and, but had you completed your PhD by this point? I was in my PhD, and I was. I, I thought to myself, "Oh, I think I, I think I have to go to medical school, um, and now I, I should probably apply seriously." And um, and then when I went to submit my scores, I realized uh, not when I went to submit my scores, but when I was looking at the application requirements. I realized that my MCAT scores had all expired. And so I called the admissions office and I was like, do I really need to take this at their time? And they're like, yeah, you, you haven't taken it in five years. So that means, or three years or whatever it was. So that means you have to take it again. You have to show us that you still can still do this. So, and so what was your PhD eventually in? Um, so my area is really looking at how to design research and how to validate different ways that you like different ways of measuring things mm -hmm. um and you can't do that in a vacuum so i did it with i did it in sport medicine at the university of calgary um and um i looked i designed a trial on tennis elbow a new treatment for tennis elbow and um and there was a tennis elbow questionnaire that was kind of new at the time um that i had to try to validate and that was that was pretty much it and then just a ton of coursework basically yeah so but then you went to then from there you went to medical school and then from there you decided you didn't want to do general practice you wanted to be a surgeon. So when you're done medical school you have to pick a specialty even if that specialty is family matter. Yeah. What, yeah, what we used to know as general practice. So there's no such it used to be like I don't know when they stopped doing it, it must have been a few, a, at least a decade ago where you could finish medical school you became an intern, which we don't have in Canada anymore. Right. Um, and um, and then after your internship, you could theoretically hang your shingle and say you're a family physician or a general practitioner, right? Right, right. Um, now you're not allowed to do that anymore. So uh, you, be, you have to declare what residency you want to go into, and then you specialize in something, even if that specialty is family medicine. Okay. Yeah. So then after medical school, I matched to plastic surgery, and then um, did my residency in plastic surgery, and then my fellowship in hand surgery, and then that, that's the end of school. Well, so you, you went to hand, so like when you're, when you're just in plastics, that's like noses and boobs, right? That's, yeah, that's, every, that's all of plastic surgery. So faces, breast, burns, hand, um, chilled like congenital stuff. Mm. Um, and that's like, and skin cancers and... You're all over, like it's all re in reconstruction and it's all over the place. So it, that's what I like about it is that it's all over the place. And now I'm, now I'm a hand monkey. So, okay. So if somebody's like working at Safeway and they, and they hack off a few digits, like, you know, cutting meat and they get rushed to the, to the hospital, they see you, right? Yeah. Okay. If I'm on call. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Can, can they request you? No, no, they can't. I guess to, technically they could, but yeah, no. Most people, there's no. I don't think that really ever happens. Yeah. Okay. How, how complicated is the hand and wrist area with all the nerves and tendons and all that kind of stuff? 
Um, well, I think like every, you, you know how there are people out there who are like, well, if I've done it, then anybody can do it for like when they lose weight or when they're gaining or, or if they're like, you know, they're working out really well and they've developed a ripped body or something like that. Like, well, I did it. Anybody can do it. Once you've done something, it becomes less complicated, obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I feel like the hand still has mysteries and things that we don't understand really well. But once you like, you know, I, I do this thing day in and day out. So for me, I don't feel like it's that complicated, but that's because I do it every single day. Right. Um, and so, but it, it you know, I think it's complicated in terms of, you know, what lay people might think or what other physicians even might think. Um, but I'm sure if you talk to a cardiologist, they'd be like, oh, yeah, the heart's really complicated, too. Right. And in my head, I'm like, the heart is like a bag, right? Like, it, that, like you know, I, I'm not going to, I shouldn't get myself into trouble. I'll get myself <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. All the cardiologists yeah. are going to write in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're like, the heart is more complicated than the bag, right? I'm like, yes, I, I know it is. I know it has electricity in it, right? Um, you know, but um, I, I think everybody thinks their specialty is obviously complicated. They're obviously complicated. They're awfully, obviously challenging in different ways. So, you know, the hand is challenging in its own way. Um, and, but I like it because it's so practical, right? You know, like every patient, every patient that I see who has a hand injury, the universal sentence is, I use my hands all the time. Yeah. Right? And like, congratulations, you and everybody else uses their hands all the time. <laughs> you never hear, eh, <laughs> really giant. Yeah, exactly. I've, I have yet to meet a patient who's like, you know, I don't ever use my hands. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, um, so, yeah, it, it, but it just sort of speaks to the importance that people place on their hands. Yeah. Um, and so even if, even, you know, whether they're a concert pianist, you know, a football player, uh, you know, a cashier at Safeway or whatever, right? Like they, everybody to a T is like, I use my, I use my hands every day. So, and like, yes, you, that's why we, this that's why this specialty exists is because everybody uses their hands every day. And that's how important it is. But like, are we like approaching like a, an Empire Strikes Back kind of thing where you can like Darth Vader can like hack your hand off. And then like in the next scene, you're just getting it reattached and, and you're fully functional again. Like, is it like you get your hand? I, obviously, you reattached probably whole hands before. Like, are they ever the same? They're never the same. No, never, never fully. Even if you attach, reattach fingers, they're never fully the same. Yeah, um, but you know, you, it's better than not having a hand. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, um, and that's why there's this whole hand transplant field now, and then there's the field of myoelectric limbs and that sort of thing that is. I think they're sort of competing right now. Like we're trying to figure out. I think if they can figure out the the immunosuppression thing sooner, then hand transplants will win. But if we figure out the robotic thing sooner, then robotics are going to win. And there's this little race that's underway right now as to who will win in terms of what do we do with missing parts. <clears throat> and this whole like 3D printing thing is changing everything. So, you know, it's kind of amazing so it's uh, it's really really interesting stuff that's going on right now for hand and wrist so you're doing all this like you know kind of high-end medical stuff you know and so what why are you slumming in fitness like why why are you hanging out with the rest of us morons like what what attracts you to it? <laughs> well i i like to feel smart no i'm just kidding um, <laughs> <laughs> um I, no sir i the i think well i've always i always liked 
I've always liked that culture to begin with. Like even as a kid, it was always, you know, I was always like nose into the muscle and fitness and the men's fitness magazines. And that's not just because I'm gay, right? Like it's like, <laughs> you know, you're like, it's it's like it's always part of every like you know physical activity has always been part of my life and I always wanted to like I wanted to go as far as I could I've I've usually I've competed in a bunch of different sports and it, and it's it's just like physical activity is fun and interesting and not just leisure like it is part of health and so you know i didn't i didn't decide to do my phd in sport medicine for no reason mm-hmm. right um and so that that's always been part of what i like yeah um, and then the fact that i ended up in plastic surgery and hand surgery is almost this bizarre accident in some ways right like i didn't plan on it's not like when i went to medical school i was like oh a hand surgery that's where i want to be right um and, and I, you know, I, I thought I would actually be in sport medicine or, or orthopedics, and, and it just didn't work. Like I didn't. I did, it's kind of like when you have a crush on somebody and you think that you want to have a relationship with them, and then suddenly you realize, no, this is this can't work. We can't be together, right? Um, it's kind of disappointing, but it, it works out for the best, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's kind of what happened to me. I went into medical school thinking, yeah, sport medicine, ortho, sport medicine, or ortho. And I kept trying them and trying them and trying them. And just you know, it's you're, it's like you're going on that coffee date for the fifth time, and you're like, okay, I, why, why are we doing? Why am I doing this, right? Um, and and the, just for whatever reason, there was no chem, there was no chemistry between me and orthopedics, and there was no chemistry between me and sport medicine. Um, and for whatever reason, I bumped into plastic surgery and it was like, oh, yeah, now I feel like this is what I want to do. Right. So, hmm. yeah. Well, um, so then that's why it seems so disparate. Right. Like yeah. not not because I because I'm well, I am screwed up, but like not because, <laughs> not because I had any kind of screwed up plan. Right. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, so that that's how that's how it all worked, and I th- and, and you, a large part of it was because like when I was in sport medicine, they, that was when they had that whole men's fit uh, the whole men's health forum thing started up online, and I made a lot of online acquaintances and friends, and there was you know they, it was sort of getting in at that ground level and talking to people about you know what they thought about certain things and why they thought the way that they thought about certain either routines or nutritional strategies or what have you. And, and, uh, and it just from that acquaintance sharing, it, it, it sort of keeps you in the, in the world, in, in that world, right? Like yeah. Lou and I have known each other a long, long time. Bill Hartman and I've known each other since 2000. So, you know, that I can never really fully escape even if I wanted to, I think. Yeah. I, well, so, I mean, I keep seeing a reoccurring theme ever since you got a ever since you got your your, your bachelor degree of, of research, and I mean this is obviously kind of higher level research. So you de- you you clearly have a lot of experience in doing actual evaluating and conducting actual research. So uh, as you well know, there's a there's a huge trend in 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 the fitness industry of of a lot more emphasis on on research. So do you have any <laughs> do you have any opinions of that or? It's funny that you should ask that question. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I, well, so what's what's happening right now? I think in fitness is and nutrition also is what's what happened in medicine maybe a couple of decades ago, and and this this I 
part of what's interesting in fitness is that it's not necessarily coming top down. So what happened in medicine is is that this idea of evidence-based medicine is what surfaced in the sort of 1970s-ish era, uh, early 80s is when it really started to take off. And um, and it became the thing to do. And now it's part, it's like part and parcel of medicine. If you, 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 you can't really be a non-evidence-based practitioner anymore. It's really, it would be hard to justify that. Um, and, uh, but that did really come from a top-down pecking order. You know, nobody really, I don't think anybody, there were very few physicians out there who were really willing to embrace it. Um, but because it turned into this hot thing, and because of the hierarchical nature of medicine, there was a very top-down slam down on evidence-based medicine. It's like, you're going to have to do this whether you like it or not, because this is the way it's going to go. And you're going to have to start justifying what you do, because we can't just experiment on people randomly anymore, because that's not ethical, right? So part of it is... Part of it is a, 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 not a resurgence, but a sort of a manifestation of both um, uh, the evolution of bioethics, the evolution of epidemiology, statistics, and computers in, in terms of being able to allow you to do all of these statistical analyses without having to use like a pen and a piece of paper or a pencil and a piece of paper, which is what you pretty much had to do. I mean, I had to run t-tests on paper when I was in undergrad. So... Um, and so the, the very thought of even having to do a regression was, was technically theoretical if you didn't have software, right? Um, because you couldn't, to do it like on a chalkboard, you, it would take you forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so with all of that, all, that, all of that sort of, that, that's a, it's a huge convergence of all of those things that come together that allow evidence-based practice to come into fruition. And then this huge top-down effect of, people at the top saying, okay, no, now we're, this is how we're going to go. Um, that, but what's interesting in fitness is that in fitness really other than celebrity. Um, and so what's interesting to see what, what's really interesting to watch is to watch this sort of very grassrootsy evidence-based sect sort of spontaneously forming, which is really kind of cool yeah. on one hand. Um, and then and then on the other hand, I don't entirely know what to make of it because it's because there's always this undertone of using it as a form of marketing. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily because you're using you're not you're not necessarily looking to do the best thing you're just looking to justify what it is that you do and it's trendy to do this with research right now and the whole idea of using research as entertainment which is therefore a marketing another marketing tool right Mm -hmm. uh and uh it's i i haven't really decided what i think of it yet. I like the idea that people are more open to quote unquote science, but I also feel like a lot of it is done for fun. It's not necessarily because anybody's trying to make a decision on something. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, I just, uh, do you think people, like your average person, even someone who's like more kind of I hate to say science-minded, but you know what I mean. Like someone who's a little more well-read. Like, can they really call themselves an evidence-based, you know, trainer or practitioner or whatever? 
Yeah, I think so. I think you can. I think anybody can be evidence based. I think what like the concept of evidence based practice uh, is basically taking into consideration other factors, particularly research factors, into how you make your care decisions. And I, I use the word care very loosely because yeah. you know most people don't think of training as care. Um, and I'm definitely more slanty towards the medicine language side of things, which is why I use the word care. But I do think training is care. Like you are planning things. People are doing things based on what you tell them to do. And there are risks and benefits to those things. Um, and so the way that, the way that traditional practice works that's not evidence-based is you base what you're going to change. You're, you're basing what you're telling other people to do on your own experience, maybe the experience of people that may or may not have taught you or that you respect or that you've read. Um, but, you know, your actual, it's really hard to separate out your own bias from what's actually happening. And there are lots of people, I think, that also don't measure anything. So if they're re relying purely on their experience, now they're relying not only just on their experience and not only on their relying on their memory of those experiences and the biased memory that that creates. So you could you can be really swayed by, you know, a couple a handful of clients that do really well on a certain strategy and you and then you may think, you know what, everybody should be doing that because because that's all you remember. You don't remember all the people that you tried this on that it didn't work for um, because either they're not your clients anymore because they went somewhere else uh, or you haven't really fully troubleshot them and they're just sort of hanging around because you're their friend, right? right. Um, and so it, it, similarly in medicine, I think that that's a, that's a behavior that was very much it was sort of a passed down knowledge. So if you were to talk to a surgeon, you know, 30, 35 years ago and said, oh, how is it that you decide what operation you're going to do on someone? They would say, oh, well, that's the operation I learned in my residency. Even if the residency was 30 years ago, they'd be like, well, that's the operation I learned in my residency. It's the operation I feel the most comfortable with. And it's the operation that I feel like I get the most predictable results with. Um, and then, and then that's kind of, and it's also the, it's the best operation in my recollection of all the people that I've ever operated on with this operation. Okay. Right? Um, and so then what they're missing is the, a little bit more objectivity. So if we actually, if we actually took all of your patients that you had done this operation on and looked at what the results were, would that actually mirror what you told them, what you just told me about this operation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that in and of itself is evidence, right? So the fact that you could, if you had been keeping records and consistent records of everything, and if, if you, you were curious, I mean, you could go back in your own record and look at that and, and really get an idea of what your numbers actually look like as opposed to what you remember them to look like. Yeah. Uh, and that alone is a form of evidence. So you, any, anybody commit evidence-based. It doesn't even have to be necessarily research-based. Right. But research is a way, I, the way I like to frame research to my trainees is, is research is, is a way of learning from other people's mistakes. Um, and learning from a large number of people's mistakes or successes. 
right? Because they're collecting, you know, 100 patients, right? And mm-hmm. that's 100 patients that you never saw or 100 athletes that you never trained, right? And they tried this thing and it either worked or it didn't work. And you, in your entire lifetime, you might not train that many people uh, in that way, mm-hmm. right? And so now you have this valuable piece of information that sits there in a journal or a book or whatever, and you're not taking advantage of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think ultimately that's what it means to be evidence-based is that you're taking that stuff into consideration and you're open enough to allow it to change your practice if you can evaluate it and you decide that that actually might be something that is worthwhile changing. Well, it doesn't replace your experience. Okay, here's decision. my decision. Before I let Scott jump in, um, I mean, it just seems that when you talk to people who really, not people who are into research, but the people who actually conduct it or, or you know, who analyze it for a living, like this is their, this is their thing. They're not, it's not their hobby. Like it's their, you know, it's their job. They're professionals. They're very, they're very kind of cautious when making recommendations using that research you know, at best they'll say you know it's interesting you know or you know more studies are needed and it, it seems to me the people who are kind of like hobbyists in this like they'll read one study or they'll read an abstract and they'll be like bam there you go there's my answer there that's that's how we should do stuff you know so that's kind of yeah mm. yeah i yeah i know what you're i and i think the, i think there's two different i think that there's two different there's two different things there uh, one is that the more the the sort of more training and the more experience and the more we can call it wisdom for lack of a better word that you gain, the more cautious you are about the new stuff yeah. because you've seen new stuff come and go, and you're less likely you you become skeptical you become skeptical because of that repeated exposure to stuff that has come and gone. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and so when uh, the, when there's a promising new study that's that's like this is this is the next big thing you read it with a very jaded eye cuz you're like well you know last year there was this other really amazing thing and the year before that there was this other really amazing thing and we haven't heard boo from either of those things yet right or even like a decade ago there was this new amazing thing remember that new amazing thing and we haven't nothing's happened with that yet right mm. um so I think that's part of the reason why, as you talk to more experienced people, that they become more hedgy because they know that the next promising thing is not necessarily the next promising thing. Yeah. Right? That being said, there are certain things that come out as the quote-unquote that really are the next big thing. So, you know, and I, I'm not trying to plug anybody here, but I, I really do think that Stu Phillips study on MRI changes in muscle versus protein synthetic rate is huge. Like it, it literally destroys protein synthetic rate as a way of measuring hypertrophy. Right. Okay. So um, yeah, break, what is, okay. Go into that a little bit more. So because there was, you know, in the sixties and seventies and eighties, it's not like MRIs were widely available and before MRI, there was no way to really measure how muscle grows like in terms of how much it grows, in, term, in, in terms of shape, right? Um, and whether like its cross-sectional area gets bigger. You had, you had not really a good way of doing that short of cutting out that muscle or, open, or like doing surgery to find out how big the muscle was, right? Um, and then, and, and so 
but the, the, there's still an interest in figuring out, well, how do we make muscles bigger? How do we get hypertrophy to happen? And, and so if you put somebody on whatever, whether it's an exercise program or a nutritional <laughs> supplement or whatever, uh, you put them on something and you want to see, does that thing make their muscles grow? You need to somehow measure, does the muscle get bigger? Uh, and there's all these disadvantages to just measuring circumference because that's affected by body fat and mm -hmm. yada, 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 right? So what they did was they said, well, most of the protein in your body is muscle. And so if we study how fast protein is synthesized in your body or how much of it is synthesized in your body, then most of that should be in the muscle tissue. And so we're going to measure this protein synthetic rate when we give people supplements or a diet or a workout program and we're going to see if their protein synthetic rate goes up and if it goes up then we're going to say because most of the protein lives in the muscle this protein synthetic muscle must be getting bigger right um and that is that's largely the that was largely the accepted way to measure muscle like muscle synthesis basically or muscle hypertrophy for a long time, uh, but now because MRI is so commonplace, it's actually possible to measure the cross-sectional area of a muscle or even to measure its volume uh, because you can take several images in sequence and extrapolate a volume of muscle from there, um, and I'm sure it has its limitations as well, but not nearly as much as just random protein synthetic rate. Um, and so you can actually measure the volume of a muscle f from before and, and after, right? Uh, and so Stu Fellow's study basically was, you know, they, if I remember correctly, I can't remember if it was protein drink plus exercise or just exercise only, but they did an MRI on a bunch of guys put them through a program or a nutritional supplement or both and then MRI them after the pro after the I think 12 weeks or 16 weeks I can't remember what the time course was um, but they also measured their fractional synthetic rate the protein synthetic rate um, that they would normally have done if they were doing a protein synthetic rate study um, and then they looked at protein synthetic rate and they looked at how much the muscle actually grew as cord like measured by the MRI right which is as close as you can get to taking out the muscle and measuring it um, and found that there's no relationship between those two. Okay. Right? So now, every time you see a study that's like protein synthetic rate goes up after we give these athletes blah, it, 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 that, all, that means is their, all that means is that their protein synthetic rate went up. It doesn't mean that their muscles actually got bigger or that their muscles might actually get bigger or that there's any kind of hypertrophy going on at all. Because apparently those two things aren't really linked. Interesting. Hmm. So now that wrecks a whole bunch of protein synthetic research <laughs> as, it, as it pertains to hypertrophy, right? And so then that also then feeds back onto practice because if your practice is based on that research on protein synthetic rate, then now you really need to start thinking about why it is you're making those decisions for your athletes. Or like if you're making, if you're doing like nutritional practices like, I don't know, like say sandwiching your workouts with, with protein and carbs because you want to increase protein synthesis. It might not be... Right. Right. Oh. Yeah. So all of those nutritional strategies, all, those, all of those little tiny info snippets that were in all of those magazines, they were like, you need to eat this many meals a day because it, it bumps your protein synthetic rate. It's like, yeah. well, okay, that's great. Now what? 
because yeah. now we don't actually know what that means anymore, mm-hmm. right? We just know that it increases your protein synthetic rate. We're assuming those, all of those little tidbits of information are, are made under the assumption that protein synthetic rate is related to hypertrophy, but now with a single study, that's being put to question. Hmm. So maximizing your protein synthetic rate is no longer necessarily a goal. Because it might, if your goal is hypertrophy, right? Because you, it might not actually have anything to do with how you hypertrophy. So does that like? I think I read somewhere that if you have one, if you have one study that disproves a theory, then that theory is no longer valid. It's toast. Then you know, even if there were a thousand that proved it correct, if you have one that disproves the theory, then the theory is wrong. So are you yeah, that's st- like calculus, right? Did, did you, I don't know if you guys took calculus. Oh, no, they, took me, they kicked me out of that. <laughs> I mean, you took it in high school. You took math yeah. in high school, right? Yeah, well, that was a, that was a stretch, too. I mean, <laughs> there were some but, gifts there. So, like, in algebra, you had, they were all, like, you, I remember when I took algebra, I had two choices when, we did the ex- when you did an exam, right? So you had this proof in front of you. It's like, blah, blah, blah equals blah, blah, blah. And then you had to prove that they either did or didn't work like that I with that statement was either true or not true and you could you could go through the algebra and like you know combine the letters and the numbers and all that stuff that I probably don't remember how to do entirely now Um, and you could go through the whole thing all the way to its conclusion and show you know 4a does not equal 5c or something like that right Um, and uh, or you could find a single value for A and C and show that it doesn't work, and that would prove that that, that thing was wrong. And that's how that, that's that concept. That's that concept. If you find a single example of a theory that's wrong, then the whole theory can't hold, right? Um, and, but that, and that has tricky elements to it, right? Uh, I, think what, I think what this MRI study does is it calls the protein synthetic rate stuff into question. It doesn't disprove it. It doesn't say that there's nothing behind protein synthetic rate, but it definitely says you can't just blindly go after protein synthetic rate anymore because it might not have this relationship that you think it has with what you're actually interested in. Okay. So if I'm just an everyday dude trying to build muscle, get stronger, look better, all that jazz, like I know for me, especially as I've gotten older, I look more and more back just tangible things that people who were successful have done you know I, I admit that's like kind of a kind of a dumb way to approach things but I just look at did like did were they successful okay what were they doing what do they have in common and those are the things I kind of I kind of key in on so do you think like such a kind of a, a basic approach to logic is is that what trainers should be doing or should they be doing more like you know pouring over research that you know maybe it's just exploratory or that they don't really understand or you know it seems like people are trying to be more research oriented now as opposed to just like using their experiences or using proven methods of other people. So, like, so guide me. Yeah, so, you're, so you're sorry. Go ahead, Scott. No, yeah. that, that's fine. You, you, you can roll with that. I'll come back to MRI stuff in, uh, yeah, in okay. a moment. Go ahead. Um, so like your question is no different than when a medical student asks me, so how do you decide, like, how, how should I decide what treatment I'm going to give this patient? Yeah. Right? Like, do I rely on my training? Do I rely on the research? Like, how do I do this? And, and the whole point of an evidence-based curriculum in medicine is to show people how to integrate everything into a single package because that's what it is. 
right? And so this idea that you have to be on one side or the other side is kind of ridiculous because when I see a patient for a problem, my solution to their problem is not necessarily, my solution may be more based on what my experience is, my solution may be more based on what the evidence is, and it may be, and it usually is a blend of those yeah. two, right? And, and that, that's, how, that's why it's called practice, yeah. right? Um, because you're also, as you, as you move forward, you are also learning and you're always learning. I'm always learning from my colleagues, my others, you know, there's five people in my hand surgery practice and I, and they're all older and all more experienced than I am. Right. Uh, I'm the most junior one in my practice. Right. Okay. I, I, you know, I'm always, I'm always bouncing things off of them. Surprisingly, they're bouncing things off of me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and so that communication really helps because um, because that's you know in and of itself is also a little bit of you know what we would term in in evidence based medicine as low quality evidence in terms right. of anecdotal evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So do you just do you just do what is what has been successful? Maybe is the answer, right? Because it depends on whether the person that you are training fits the profile of those people that were successful. Right, mm. right, right. You can't train someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger if they're not like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right, right. Right? Like, it makes no sense. And it, just to say that out loud, if you were to say that out loud, it was like, well, the, yeah, of course, that makes <laughs> zero sense. Why yeah. would you do that? Right. And so if you're following what has been successful for, you know, the people that, who are the quote unquote masters, then you had better make sure that you're kind of like those guys who were like the masters. But I, yeah, I agreed. I agree. I mean, you know, but I mean, it's kind of it's physiology. Like, I mean, there, there's no one's like a total snowflake. No, no one's a total snowflake. But you also have but you but you have to make sure that you're not allowing this athletic bias to really creep it in right so you know i think i wrote this on my blog years like when i first started the blog in 2007 um looking at um i think i called it you know does gymnastics make me short right if you look at <laughs> you look at all gym all successful gymnasts most of them are less than six feet tall right and so then it's so you know, if you if and if you say if you want a gymnast body, you need to train like a gymnast because look at all of those elite gymnasts. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know that it's that's what you're. Do you under do you even have an idea of how many people train like gymnasts and never look like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, and and that's that's what I mean by not necessarily following the best because that the uh, the common things that have worked for the best because the, you don't know who else has tried those methods and hasn't worked. Right. Good point. Right. right. And you don't, and maybe, maybe that what all of the things that those great people have in common actually hurts the majority of people who try it. And only the people who are the most resilient actually get through that and become that amazing. It's like people who take up Olympic weightlifting because they want to look like the top guy on the Chinese Olympic weightlifting team. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like how many weight, how many crippled weightlifters are out there? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> right, right, true. That's a good point. You know, um, it, 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 that and that's where that 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 falls apart. That that argument falls apart at that point because you don't know what the denominator is. All you have is a numerator of the people that you want to look at, 
It's usually know, the elite, <laughs> the elite of the elite. Yeah, you're always looking at the elite people who have the most publicity. Yeah, yeah. right. And it's their and life it's, to do what they're doing. Yeah, it's not their whole yeah. lifestyle. It's but even like if you were, even if you were to look at the athletes who are just under that level, right? Um, you know, where it's not necessarily their entire life, but the majority of their life, I'm, that numerator and denominator changes, mm-hmm. right? In terms of what they're doing. <clears throat> And what they can do and what their body will allow them to do right so yeah we're not all necessarily snowflakey and it, there is a certain commonality to physiology but i think the out looking at outliers which is what you're doing when you're looking at elite athletes um is is not really that helpful if you're not an outlier mm-hmm. and but it's impossible to tell if you're an outlier until you expose yourself to that kind of training right so when you when you look at guys or girls sorry women um yeah who in their in sort of their late 20s early 30s who have managed to achieve what you would normally characterize as a genetically gifted physique mm-hmm. right and they say well i did it look how i looked before when i was 22 i was a fat slob right yeah. and i'd never done anything and then i turned 26 and i decided i was going to go on this journey and become this thing this amazing specimen right mm-hmm. uh, it's like well you didn't we had no you had no idea what you were at that time Right, it's like all these twenty-two-year-old muscle models who post before pictures of when they were thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. You're like, what? Everybody right? It's like, look at all the hard, look at, what, look at look at look at all my hard work. Look at what my hard work did. Look at what my training method did to me. I'm like, you were thirteen in this photo. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you had no idea what you were going to become in the first place. You had no idea of what your genetic potential was in the first place when you were, th- or even sixteen, or even eighteen, right? Like between eighteen and twenty-three, like some random twenty-three, twenty-four-year-old muscle models, like before pictures when I was eighteen. I'm like, what? You've got to be kidding me! I right? see that all. The- Actually, I just was sharing one with Brian a couple of weeks <laughs> ago, where uh, yeah, I showed the picture that there's one one guy who posts has a big claim of gaining a shitload of muscle in a short period of time and he's using pictures from like more than a decade apart when the, the before picture is when he was i looks like a late teens there yeah. and then a, a picture from now but the claim is gaining a shitload of muscle in a short period of time well it's it's not even close to a short period of time span that you're using your before and after photos and god if i showed used pictures of when i was a teenager it's ridiculous compared to what i look like right now yeah that's so yeah disingenuous like i mean well i, I think for for them they i think they do th- because they're 22 right yeah. so you know they're 22 and 18 is not that long ago and so and that's sort of their their i that's when they were dissatisfied with what they looked like and now they're happy with how they look like and like hey look look what can what you can do look what i did and you're like yes but you weren't even close to being what you are. And now, and now you look like an outlier, but the reality is you were probably always an outlier. Yeah. Right. Um, and you can't tell if you're going to be an outlier until you actually put in the work, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, sadly, I'm not an outlier. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's it, it, so depressing to find out you're not an outlier. Right. So, yeah, but, um, but that's what I mean. Like you, all of the, everybody's like, oh well, you know, you got to try what the outliers are doing. It's like, yeah. well, maybe you do, mm-hmm. if if only to find out maybe you're not. 
Now, is yeah. that an area of interesting research right now where you, you can kind of determine whether you're, um, um, was it non, ah, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Non-responder. Yeah. If you were, how, how well you're going to respond to so exercise. So there's, or there's a few companies that claim that they can tell you if you're going to be a non-responder, but we don't get it. We don't understand enough of it. I yeah. don't, I think if you asked anybody who really, who's not actively trying to market genetic testing for stuff like that, um, we, well, they'll tell you, we don't get it. We don't understand it. Like mm-hmm. we don't, we don't even understand how, we don't even understand how hypertrophy truly works. Right. Well, don't, right? don't the Chinese, I keep bringing them up, but don't they have like a test for their Olympic weightlifting? Like they take the kids when they're like <laughs> three years old, they have them do some tests and they can kind of get an idea whether they're going to Oh yeah, no, China, Australia, um, I think there's a couple of other countries that have national testing yeah. um, of, of their children uh, and then basically like shunting of children off to you know, various sports at a very early age, like talent identification type of oh, that's strategies. Awesome. Yeah. Um, China definitely has it. I'm pretty sure Russia had it if they don't still have it. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure Australia still has talent identification programs in place. Um, and, uh, but the, the identification programs, if you're sort of, you know, there's two different bodies of literature on that. Um, and, you know, the sort of, more underground, not underground, but sort of less mainstream type literature sort of suggests that it's basically still a weeding out type of issue. So they, they'll do these talent identification tests and yeah. they'll, they'll call like, you know, I mean, the population of China is ridiculously large. So even if you took a pool of 500 kids, yeah. right, you're going to get one out of there somewhere. <laughs> Right, it's like three hundred, and the rest are just thrown into this. Yeah, and 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 by all of, by by certain accounts of how this uh, how this whole process works, that is kind of how it goes. So they might they might so they might go into schools and put all these kids through some sort of strength testing. They take the strongest kids, and they probably start out with a very large number of kids. Yeah, and then. And then they end up with the Chinese weightlifting team, which is five people, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, or I can't remember what the number is for the yeah. Chinese weightlifting, just in case somebody calls me out on that. So, because um, I could see that happening. Um, yeah. But that, that's what I mean, right? Like you, that, that's how these, that, that's how I think China's program kind of works, is they just, they start with a really large number, and whoever makes it to the end is kind of who gets there. Um, I wish my gym did that. Like, I wish you, like, they just called everybody and like uh, you know I so- would be allowed into my gym if they did that <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious I'd be one of those like I'd be one of those thrown out people <laughs> I'd like to get back to uh, the MRI stuff now I see especially thanks to Facebook a, a lot of these evidence-based um, crowd they uh, they can get, really get their panties rustled in a bunch if um, whenever EMG research is is brought up and um, like looking back at a lot of the books on uh, on exercise selection um, that uh, that I've read over the years um, yeah there's one by Paratesh the the target bodybuilding he used MRI to study um, to look at muscle activation like performing certain exercises and see um, which heads of the quadriceps are used during a certain exercises or biceps during certain exercises, how is MRI a better tool for for that? Is it is it a, 
a good tool to use to determine which exercises target certain heads of the muscle. Um, and how does that compare to EMG? Is EMG as useless as some people make it say, or is it a pretty helpful tool for muscle activation? And is muscle activation even important <laughs> when it comes to hypertrophy? So again, we don't, we don't understand hypertrophy enough to know the answer to most of your questions, right? We just don't. We don't. I don't. Th- I don't think maybe there's a muscle physiologist out there who's full of crap. But um, I don't think we understand it enough. Like this idea that you have to recruit every single muscle fiber to get hypertrophy. I think is more a numbers game philosophy than it is an actual rooted in science philosophy. The idea is if you can recruit every single muscle fiber and each of them grows by 0.01 microns and you have, you know, a thousand muscle fibers or 10,000 muscle fibers, that then you're, that's how you're going to get that two centimeters of growth because every little tiny bit is going to contribute to make up that two centimeters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's where that theory is based. I don't think that there's anything else behind it. They're like, if you, if every muscle, we can get every muscle fiber to grow a little bit, then the whole muscle will get bigger. And the only way to get every muscle fiber to to grow a little bit is to exhaust every single one of them. Right. Right. What we don't understand, I don't, I don't think what muscle fibers contribute specifically to hypertrophy. I mean, there's the type one, type two, type two, A, two, B, all of that stuff where they've done those muscle biopsy studies and like, well, most hypertrophy happens in, I can't remember which muscle fiber type it is now. I think it's whatever the fast twitch ones are. Right. Um, and then, and then there's another study that's like, no, 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 the slow twitch ones grow too. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, EMG is a measurement of electrical activity. Yeah, it's just whether it's on so, or off, right? Like whether a muscle's firing or not, correct? There's- and how long it's firing. Well, how long there's a signal. So what you're measuring is the impulse of the nerve as it transmits into the muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the assumption is that as the nerve is producing an electrical current into the muscle fiber, that the muscle is contracting. And that... I think it's a pretty reliable assumption to make. I don't know, unless you paralyze the muscle, electrical activity going into the muscle is producing something in the muscle. Um, you know, I don't think you ever get electrical activity going into a muscle that is above baseline uh, electric, electrical activity where the muscle doesn't do anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless you Botox the muscle. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's what it's measuring. It's not measuring force. It's not measuring excursion, like fiber excursion. It's not measuring, um, I already said force production. It's not measuring tension. It's not measuring any of those things. It's just measuring the nerve impulse as it goes into the muscle. So, and there, there's still like the, the holy grail of EMG research right now, or at least when I was going through grad school and still I think is going right now, is is there a way to get more information out of the EMG signal by either processing it somehow, by integrating it mathematically somehow, looking at the area underneath the EMG signal? Like, is there a way at getting at something like force production from an EMG signal? And I don't think that has really clarified yet still. It's, it's still sort of this nerve works and it's going into the muscle. Hmm. So 
you know, from a training perspective, if you're trying to target a muscle and there are EMG studies to show that the exercise that you're doing doesn't actually turn that muscle on, yeah. then that's, that's great evidence to say you should stop doing that. Right. Right. Uh, and similarly, if there's a study that says when you do this exercise, this muscle turns on and that's the muscle you're interested in turning on, then that's also really good evidence to say that's a good exercise. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you, I, I don't think that it's, that's pretty, that's pretty simplistic. I don't, I don't think there's any argument there. Right. And now comparing the, that to MRI, what, what would MRI show us like afterwards? So I, obviously it's not because I think Peritesh, you, you did the exercise and afterwards you did an MRI on the muscle and you see like one of the heads, there's it's slightly head. bigger. Yeah. 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 So MRI only shows you anatomic it only shows you anatomic imaging, right? So, and depending on how you do the, I'm not a radiologist, so I'm not necessarily the expert on MRIs, but from what I understand of MRIs, which is hopefully enough, um, is so the MRI will show you the size of the muscle. It, if you do an MRI in a certain way um, where you put contrast, into someone's veins and you run it around, then you can see blood flow. Uh, well, not blood flow, but it'll help you identify blood vessels and it'll show you whether those blood vessels are bigger or not. So if the muscle is being worked, your assumption is that there's more blood flow in the muscle, therefore the muscle will appear bigger on MRI, right? Mm -hmm. Because chances are if you're doing the exercise and then you put the person to the MRI machine, it's not like their actual muscle tissue got bigger. Right. Okay. Right. So it's not like they suddenly their muscle had more protein in it, or you know, right? It, they, that, or the like the actual protein part of the muscle didn't suddenly get bigger. If the muscle got bigger, it's because there's more fluid in the muscle. Right. Right. So you're making the assumption that more blood flow into the muscle indicates that the muscle was demanding that blood flow, therefore must have been working hard during that exercise, and so that's how you're getting at that. Excellent. So it's still uh, two steps out from the actual, does, is this muscle actually working? Now there's dynamic MRI where you could actually theoretically watch a muscle move while you're doing the exercise in an MRI. I don't know if that's even possible at this time or not because it requires constant scanning and I don't know if an MRI can scan fast enough mm -hmm. to, to capture that, right? Um, so... so if you know. so, so if someone builds their exercise library, you know, it's kind of exclusively around what they pulled out of EMG reports. Like, is that, would you think that's kind of maybe being a little unwise? <laughs> or Well, like, so, I mean, if you go back to basic training principles, right? So, you know, your basic training principles, like principle of overload, principle of progression, yeah. right? So you have to progress, you have to overload the muscle in some way. The only way to actually overload the muscle is to work the muscle. If you design your program around an exercise that actually works the muscle and you're overloading it, then I don't see anything wrong with that, right? And if you know the muscle's turned on mm -hmm. by, by an EMG study, then I think that's as good as any other mechanism of trying to figure out whether that muscle is being worked or not. I do find though that, and especially as I've gotten older, there, like there's a limitation to progressive overload. Like you can't just keep adding weight. No, I'm used, I'm not necessarily using load as the way to. Oh, I see. Yeah, progressive mm -hmm. overload, right? right? Like I'm talking about work, 
right? Okay, whether right. that's reps, whether that's less rest, whether that's a higher load, whether that's whatever you want to call it, you know, frequency, load, speed. Right, right. All yeah. of that comes into work, right? Yeah. Um, into that category. So you have, to, you have to increase the work that the muscle does. Mm-hmm. And, and if you have to target that muscle somehow, then you should be doing an exercise where that muscle is turned on. And if you're using an EMG study to say that turns the muscle on, then as and and you're and you're you're progressing that muscle in terms of the work that it does, then theoretically that should do it, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I don't see anything wrong with saying, you know, that's that's why I've picked this exercise for you to do because this study shows that when you do this exercise, that this muscle is turned on. Right, right. Right. Well, because I mean, how else? Like, what? What else do you have to go on? Yeah. 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 I feel. I feel the pump of it. Right. Yeah. 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 As as someone who trains for aesthetics and overall shape of a muscle, I I do like overall exercise selection and and, and variety, kind of relying a little bit on the EMG and the MRI studies combined to uh, to make sure that all heads and the muscles are are getting adequate stimulation and uh, activation um, yeah but if i if i do something and i don't feel it i know it's gonna make brian have a stroke he hates that word feeling but if i'm doing an exercise and i I hate feelings yeah you hate feeling (laughs) like if i don't feel it where i want to be feeling it and it's you know and and it's kind of an optional lift it's not like a you know if i was a power lifter obviously i couldn't have such a you know you're you're gonna bench you're gonna squat you're gonna dead but Mm -hmm. that's not who i am so i kind of have you know, like most lifters, I kind of have all these exercises at my disposal. So if I'm doing something and I'm just not feeling it where I'm supposed to be feeling it, I will do something else because I know I have like probably a dozen or so options. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know. I, I, I would agree with that. Feel feel is part of the – so yeah. I don't just solely rely on that information uh, on EMG or MRI. Definitely a feel. Yeah. And But the thing, the, the thing about the – EMG and the MRI stuff is that it gives me an idea of where I should be feeling if I'm not feeling it like if I'm doing a back exercise and I'm yeah. like how come I'm not feeling it in my lats right now what what can I do what what, what can I alter in my form or yeah in my yeah. mind I guess for a lot of time with the mind muscle connection to kind of feel feel it where I should be feeling it and, and conversely, if you weren't feeling it with a certain exercise, you wouldn't pick another exercise where it was very clear that there was never an EMG signal there right. to begin with. Right, right, yeah. Right? So, you know, it, it, it's kind of neither here nor there. Like if you're doing a lat pull down and you don't feel it in your lats, you're not going to do a bench press. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, if you did feel a bit, even if you did feel it in your lats on bench press. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I do would at you, times. Would you, would you, you will, do, yeah, that's true. Would you do a bench press as a primary back exercise? Right. Yeah. Nope. Right. <laughs> so, right, like, and so even if, and even if, any, and, and then also, you know, sort of to play a little bit of the other side, um, you know, even if somebody said, oh, yeah, EMG signal is on for the lats and bench press, which it is, you still would never prescribe that as a primary back exercise. Right. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, true. I, I should say too. I mean, the first thing I would double check would be, would be my form. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like. A, um. And, and it's, you know, there's obviously EMG is not the be all. Is is nothing is the be all and end all of everything. Whether it's MRI, EMG, what have you, right? Like that's why there's a whole field of biomechanics. Mm-hmm. Right. So 
you 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 have to it all comes you know the anatomy the physiology the electrophysiology all of that is is just part of the whole thing and if you are just isolating one little tiny thing and making it your hammer and everything else is a nail then yeah. you have problems with that that's interesting that you bring that up because i know they, it, there's well one person in particular who is very against emg studies but all he relies on is biomechanics it's just looking at the biomechanics the movement if it's that's the only it's the only end-all be-all um, for determining exercise selection and I don't know. I think that's a bit silly when you have every, all these other tools at your disposal as well. Yeah. Oh, I think to a certain extent, the, the you know the orientation of the bones and the muscles is a great way to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the EMG is contradicting the biomechanic, then you can't completely ignore that either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if if for whatever reason, let's pretend for a moment that we said, okay, so bench press is anatomically, biomechanically, triceps and chest, right? Or pec, sorry, to be anatomic, right? So uh, pec major primarily, not so much pec minor, triceps, maybe anterior delts. And some, let's pretend for a moment that somebody did no activation of the pec major in a bench press, right? Then, then you, you have to think about that a little bit. Because, and let's pretend there are no other EMG studies on bench press. Like, that's the only one, right? Then you would have to sit down and you'd have to go, okay, well, is that actually, is that doing what I think it's actually doing? Does that confirm my, quote-unquote, theory, my biomechanical theory that bench press activates the pec major, right? Right, right, right. So you would have to question your, you would have to question your own assumptions. So there's nothing wrong with starting out as a biomechanist or, you know, or an anatomist and saying, okay, well, this the way this joint moves and the, the muscles that are attached to this bone from here to here, if I shorten this muscle, this is the plane that it moves in. Therefore, this is the plane that I want my athletes to move in because I feel that's going to produce the most amount of shortening of this muscle. That, there's nothing wrong with starting there. If there's an EMG study that shows there's, there's no signal going to that muscle during that particular motion that you theorized was going to produce that shortening, then chances are that muscle ain't shortening. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So then you have to really think you have then you have to reconsider, I think, at that point. And that's what it means to be. I think that's sort of the the that's like a good example of what it means to be evidence based, that you can't be so locked into something that you won't you won't consider something else that challenges your belief system. Excellent. Excellent. Um, In terms of body recomposition, has there been any research lately that you've come across that's uh, really piqued your interest or that you found exciting? No. No, <laughs> it's all boring. Same old, same old. Nothing that we nothing's haven't learned new. anything new. Yeah, nothing is nothing's, nothing's new. new. I haven't seen anything. New. So, what's really piquing my interest now? I, I'll say this for, in terms of body recomposition and as it pertains to dieting. I think what's new that hasn't happened yet and is coming down the pipe. I'm, this is my pure crystal ball prediction: um, is that we are going to stop talking about what diet is best. And we're going to start talking about the personal factors that make diets better for some people and not others. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because this whole idea, no, you know, like I, I think this whole pegging everybody into a single, everybody's a, everybody's a round peg, round hole, and everybody's going to fit in there is like, is never going to work, right? Right. And so it's, so we're going to start really looking at, well, what causes adherence? 
and and why why do some people adhere and some people don't adhere uh and maybe what we'll find is well i think what we'll find up in the end is that you know certain people will adhere to certain diets better than others but that no specific diet isn't is completely non-adherent for everybody right are you sick of reading about habits yet <laughs> no i haven't read anything about habits in a long, long time oh well it seems to be, okay yeah no i just right um it's really funny because before before we came on, uh, I was telling you guys about the the back to work podcast, right, right, and and Merlin Mann puts it he so he's a productivity um, quote unquote guru or expert. He would never call himself a guru, um, but uh, so he talks about like what it means to do things that are important to you, right, and how you decide to do things that are important, uh, and how you decide to allocate your time. Um, and they still have the non-explicit rating on this, so I think I can say this. Um, and he said, you know, no one tells, you never have to schedule when you masturbate. <laughs> like, that just never happens. You don't put that in your calendar, right? <laughs> it's not like, it's not on your task list. It's not on a to-do list. Like, you don't write on your to-do list, masturbate today, right? Like, today? It's like, you're whatever. Like, masturbate, masturbation, one o'clock, right? <laughs> Scheduled for 10 minutes, right? Like, you know, that, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. You, you never have to schedule it. And he, you know, his other example is you never schedule yourself to play video games, right? Like, that just doesn't, you don't ever put that in your schedule, right? right? Um, and so similarly, I think, you know, in terms of does, do things become a habit or not, have a large, to a large extent, just simply become a, an issue of whether or not it's really that important. And if it's not that important to you, then maybe you don't need to, you know, maybe you shouldn't be spending that much energy on it. Yeah, I, that's a very good point. I, I know a friend of mine is a psychologist and he says you always, people are getting a little too hung up on forcing themselves to follow these habits. Yeah. And if they don't stick, you know, oh, I got to go, it's not 21 days, I got to do it for 60 days or 90 days. And yeah. And my, my friend says it's, it's completely backwards. You have, to, you have to establish your values first. You have to determine, okay, is this actually important to you? Like, yeah. This is, you know, is it, and then work from there, work backwards, then establish like the behaviors and what have you. But yeah. And then what's, but, but the problem with that is that what's going to happen, it's going to spawn a whole other industry of people that are going to tell you how to make things important to you. Oh, God. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> how to make things important to you. Interesting. <laughs> that, that's what's going to happen next. Because that's the next logical step, right? It's like, so if, if, you, if you can't develop a habit unless it's important to you, then we got to figure a way to force it to become important to you. <laughs> right? Well, being, being a jack, bro, that's very important to me, so I don't have to make it a habit. It's just, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with you being in the, uh, like the plastic surgery field, um, what about uh, loose skin? That's a, it's a common question I get, and I know my workout partner, he's uh, 52 years old, he used to be about 50 pounds heavier than what he is right now, so it's like 10 to 15 years ago, um, he's freaking lean, he's pretty damn shredded, but that extra little bit of loose skin that hangs around his, his lower belly, it kind of makes him look like he's carrying fat there, but he's not, like everything else is crazy ass ripped. Uh, is there anything aside from surgery that he can do to kind of tighten that 
skin up, especially at this stage, like his age in his 50s and everything, or is surgery kind of the only option there? Yeah, the short answer is no. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, short, like short of surgery, right? Yeah, short of surgery. Okay. Short of surgery, the short answer is, is there anything else he can do? The answer is no. Oh, okay, right. Because your skin elasticity is your skin elasticity. It'll either rebound or it won't rebound after you lose significant amounts of weight. And the fact that, so the fact that it's sort of hanging a little bit is, means that it's being, that, that skin is being subject to gravity. And so the gravity is resisting that elasticity. Uh -huh. And even if he were to lie down prone or supine for months at a time to see whether his skin might like come back up by not exposing it to gravity, by being perpendicular to gravity, it's highly unlikely, mm -hmm. right? That's basically that would so that would be the one thing that might work, and I'd see mostly jest. Yeah, he uh, getting a little more jacked, I'm sure, would help a little bit. Like building a little bit more muscle would kind of fill in. Well, that. If you fill it, yeah, if you could fill in that, that if you could make so basically, skin is is basically the 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 covering of your muscles. So if you fill up that space with something, whether it's fat or something else, then that wrinkle is going to, that's basically one large wrinkle, right? So the wrinkle goes away if you put something under it. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. And so there's not much to do with the, the loose skin is the loose skin, especially if it's been there a really long time mm -hmm. uh, or if it's overhanging significantly, then unfortunately there's, it's not likely going to just tighten up because the forces that are on the skin are such that it, the, it actually actively prevents that from tightening as well. So okay. no creams, no other stuff. It's just... It is what it is. No. Yeah. You have excess tissue, like the, the actual skin tissue is excess. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it was really marginal, you could try to shrink the collagen fibers somehow. And I'm not saying that a cream does that because I'm not aware of any cream that actively does that, um, short of like a skin peel, which is for really superficial wrinkles, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you have an over, if you have a little tiny skin overhang and that's, the excess skin thing then then the, that you never no amount of collagen shortening is going to make that go away mm -hmm. because it's just too big a distance all right well that's depressing isn't it yeah. uh no it well it is I, it's a common question and it's and i know some of the clients uh, or some of the subscribers who propose that question they feel they almost feel like uh they're in a moral dilemma. They're kind of against cosmetic surgery. It's, will people think I'm cheating if I get a little tummy tuck here? Even though they've like busted their butt off, getting like losing all that fat, and then they get to this point where, well, I have this loose skin, but I, if I, it's like I get a tummy tuck, are people going to think, well, you had surgery? And so they're kind of in that a bit of that moral dilemma there, and they're kind of exploring all these other options to see if it is possible. Yeah. I do not understand how anything immoral about about that. I mean, if it makes you feel good and you're not hurting anyone, you're not hurting yourself, then gosh, have at it. My opinion. Yeah, as long as your expectations are reasonable about what you're actually going to get out of it, yeah. which is basically what consulting a plastic surgeon or cosmetic surgeon, you should really just see a plastic surgeon, not just a cosmetic surgeon. Um, that's my personal bias. Um, <laughs> but um, 
but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's what that consultation is for, so that you can figure out, well, what are your options? What, what, what expectations are reasonable? Are your expectations reasonable? If they're not reasonable, then maybe you shouldn't do that. Good stuff, man. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I've, yeah, I think I've exhausted my amount of questions I have for Brian because I could go on all day, but yeah, you know. no kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's that's good. Anything else, Brian? That, that you... and everything just dies right there. Every, that's, that's all. Just, that's it. We're just, everything's just like dead. <laughs> so. No, I'm just, I'm just skipping through our email thread here of possible things we could ask you, and most of them are just kind of like, yeah, stuff that really annoys you, and and you know, <laughs> we don't, you know. Yeah, I think well, a lot of it what annoys me is just as we've talked about in terms of research and stuff. It's it's how people use it in marketing and misleading others, and uh, yeah, just putting links to PubMed and and I, I, I think. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of claims and, and that a program works, and it's never, oftentimes I look at, I don't think most people look at the studies and evidence that is presented in references at the bottom of a, um, like an ad or whatever, but yeah, a lot of times if I do explore it, I'm like, how the hell does this research even relate to the workout program that you've put out there? It's just, uh, I think a lot of bogus misuse of the evidence-based I guess, uh, era that we're in right now in fitness. Yeah, it's it definitely the marketing slant on everything is, is definitely very warping, I have to say. But yeah, I think that's it. I know, uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. So Brian, any, uh, Brian Chung, like, anything else that you <coughs> need to had on your mind that you want to talk about before we wrap things up here? You're all good. Yeah, <laughs> excellent all right yeah, i mean schedule you you're kind of at, over at evidencebasedfitness.net you just post whenever the heck you get a great idea that pops in your mind or a topic that you're passionate about but still definitely uh worth hopping on there subscribing to or following and any other way that we yeah, should be following i'm really you? bad at updating that no, uh, <laughs> but when you I do Twitter, it's quality Twitter's yeah. your favorite I'm place to be, or Twitter what? Twitter and and Facebook. I'm on Facebook. Evidence based fitness is on Facebook as well. Mm-hmm. Although, I, I, you know, again, they're, they're not updated that frequently, and my Twitter is very banal. Would you answer like if people actually emailed you, like if they if they come across like something, you know, some some whatever, if they're if, if someone's using research to convince them of something, and and they were weren't sure, and they emailed you their dilemma, would you actually answer them, or probably not? I think it depends on the question. I, I do get emails. I don't get a lot of email, um, uh, which is good. Um, but uh, I think it depends on the question. I have gotten some really broad questions about things. Yeah. Uh, and it's like there's there's no way I can answer this email in any way that's going to be satisfactory to either of us without devoting a week of time to this, like write, you know, basically writing a huge article on it. Um, I have gotten some nice artic- um, some nice studies from people that have ended up going up on the blog mm-hmm. uh, because I think they're interesting and it's sort of nice to get those emails where it's like, hey, what do you think of this? And and uh, and not necessarily expecting an answer from me, but then yeah, maybe yeah. a couple of months later or something, then it just flashes up on the blog and it's like, oh, I got this this idea I got from this certain person here and this is why I'm writing about it and maybe it's interesting to more than just this person. 
uh, I don't give medical advice by email, obviously. So, <laughs> you know, because that people do. I mean, yeah, there's certain generalizable things that you can tell people, but I don't usually. I won't give specific things out to people like that, obviously. Um, but uh, will you write prescriptions yeah. over email or? Uh, well, I don't generally write prescriptions to begin with, so I'm a surgeon, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you need antibiotics, I suppose, maybe, but yeah, no, I'm just kidding. No, the answer's no, the answer's no. I need some velvets, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm at I mean, welcome email. You're but, not selling it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But but don't don't always necessarily expect a response. I guess maybe mm. I don't know. It depends on what you're asking. Sometimes it's short and sweet, and then it's easy to give a nice little answer or something like that. I've had a lot of questions. I wrote that. That's why I wrote that blog post on whether I should go to medical school or not because I was getting a lot of email about people thinking about going to medical school and still really being interested in fitness and nutrition and how they were going to marry those two things together and um, and that sort of thing. And I I thought that was sort of two steps ahead of themselves in some ways because they hadn't actually gotten into medical school yet. And it was like, well, you know, before you decide how you're going to mesh everything together, maybe you should figure out whether you can get into medical school first hmm. and whether that's something you actually want to do. Well, uh, I do know for me, whenever I come across something like research-wise, like as, as I'm, I've said many times, I don't fancy myself a researcher or even, a, you know, that's not my field. So whenever I, I, I run into something I'm, I'm not sure about, I... I contact my good friend Dr. Chung, and he explains the limitations of the study to me, and and, just, and pats me on the head, and tells me everything's going to be okay, and <laughs> I, I just, this, and just keep lifting, bro. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, basically, that's right. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah. Well, I appreciate well, you coming on, working, Brian. So, you know, yeah, no worries. Excellent. Right. Good fun. All right. We'll uh, hope everyone enjoyed this. I certainly did. And uh, yeah. <laughs> we will. Uh, what an exciting finish. What a climax. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, not my, it's, it's in my schedule. I got to, you know, I got to do that once a day, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> Very cool. Well, yeah. Once again, thanks a lot, Brian and Brian. All Always right. good catching up to you. And yes, I, good fun conversation. Appreciate you having on. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon.